0: predestinarianism is blamed for the lack of church growth at the time of the Reformation. And as a shocking example of the way in which a predestinarian can cut the nerve of church growth, uh, John Calvin is quoted, the quotation is this, we are taught that the kingdom of Christ is neither to be advanced nor maintained by the industry of men, but this is the work of God alone. Now, the origin of the quotation is not given, and of course the difficulty in tracing it is that there are so many passages in the Bible in which we are taught this, and it's therefore (laughs) hard to, it's a little hard to say which one Calvin was referring to when he used that favorite formula of his, uh, commenting on scripture, we are taught. Uh, You might think, for example, of the parable of the seed growing secretly, but uh, in his comment on that passage, Calvin exhorts ministers of the word to greater diligence in sowing the seed of the gospel, since they may trust in God's blessing to add to the fruit of their labors. So that can't be it. Now, the whole Bible bears God's own witness that salvation is of the Lord and that apart from the new birth of the Spirit, a man cannot even see the kingdom of God, much less enter it. Paul's cup of joy in the predestinating will of God sums up the whole history of salvation, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Reformed theologians have not learned enough from the great apostle of the Gentiles, but they, in the whole Church of the Reformation, have rightly shared Paul's vision of the triumph of God's electing grace in salvation. The problem is not how to reduce or adapt Calvinistic theology to a theology of missions. Rather, the problem lies in explaining how those who had been so inflamed by the New Testament theology of grace could have so quenched the missionary fire that it kindles. But our most pressing task today is not to analyze the past, but to look to the future. What is the missionary flame of Reformed theology? Or perhaps we might ask better, what is the missionary fullness uh, of Reformed theology? Uh, what hope does it bring in the confusion of the present, the challenge of Christian mission in the last decades of this century. The Reformers called the Church back to the Word of God, where the gospel of grace is proclaimed. And today we must follow their example. No doubt the Reformation too needs reforming if we will subject everything to the authority of the Holy Spirit who has spoken in Scripture and who opens our ears to hear. But we are not surprised to discover that as we search the scriptures, we renew our grasp on those great truths that mastered those who searched them before us. And there are four of these uh, themes that seem to me to be of particular importance for our consideration. Grand themes, central themes of the Reformed faith, but themes that have a missionary fullness that I think we have not always perceived. And those themes are the themes of the glory of God, the grace of God, the kingdom of God, and the word of God. Now, my time is limited, and uh, I am not going to be able to say very much especially about the last of these, although uh, it is, of course, an extremely important subject. But the point is, there is no separate theology of missions as an appendix to be added to Reformed doctrine, but rather what we need to do is to recover the missionary depth and the missionary heart of those central doctrines of Reformed theology. Let's think for a moment first, then, about the glory of God, which is the goal of missions. In terms of Paul's doxology, all things are of him and through him and to him. And let's begin with the end that all things are to God, to his glory. Of course, Paul makes that statement, not with a view simply to God's control over all things or to the ultimate glory of God in all things. He makes the statement particularly with the work of salvation in view. He's talking about the history of redemption, and it's this history of redemption which is to glorify God. And so Paul gives us a picture of the doxological fulfillment of missions, and he sees this in terms of his own calling as the great apostle to the Gentiles. Paul, of course, was faced with a a continual burden, a great pressure on him as an apostle. The charge was that he had betrayed his people the charge was that he was a renegade that he had deserted his people in order to offer to the Gentiles what was really the heritage of the people of God and Paul is of course sensitive to this charge and he's continually defending himself against it and in the book of Romans He is describing his own ministry as he gives us the overall picture of the way in which the gospel is carried to the Gentiles, to the nations. Paul has in mind the whole history of redemption, of how Israel was called in order that Israel might be made a blessing to the nations, and how Israel failed in that calling, and how there came down destruction on the people of God because of their failure. Uh, But then uh, an even greater failure, that after Jerusalem, which had been made the place where God's name was to be glorified, which had been made the place where the Gentiles were to be drawn in to glorify God and to join in the praises of the Psalms, even after Jerusalem had been destroyed and had been left a smoking ruin, uh, the people of God, when they were restored from exile, when when they were brought back as a little remnant uh, of the people of God, uh, purged of idolatry, They proceeded then to develop a religion of self-righteousness, a religion that Paul himself had had, the religion of the Pharisees, so that when the Son of God came in the flesh, when he came to the people, uh, they cried out, Crucify him, and Paul's own hands were red with the blood of Christ's disciples. Now the Apostle Paul then knew what it meant, to be found guilty before God, to be the chief of sinners, to deserve only the wrath of God uh, for that which he had done. But God, in his sovereign mercy, met Paul on the road to Damascus, and he revealed his glory to Paul there, the glory of the Savior. Now, Paul, in his whole ministry, is continually full of the praise of God. His his ministry, uh, like his face on the road to Damascus, reflects the glory of the Lord. And he who had been blinded in his conversion experience by that glory continually celebrates the glory of God in everything that he does. He that glorieth, cries the apostle, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. But Paul, who was in that way, Added to the remnant, uh, Paul who was uh, snatched as a brand from the burning, uh, Paul saw his ministry in terms of the great work uh, that God was doing. He saw his ministry in terms of the great fullness that God had determined to gather in. Paul saw his own ministry in terms of the fullness of the Gentiles that must be brought in to worship God. And you'll notice in the 15th chapter of Romans, as he describes his ministry in verse 16, he says that I should be a minister of Christ Jesus unto the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be made acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul in that passage is reflecting on passages in Isaiah, uh, some of them that uh, Uh, Harvey Kahn was referring to at the beginning of this conference. Uh, Passages which speak about uh, the Gentiles being gathered in. God says he will gather in not only the remnant of his own people, but he will gather in the remnant of the Gentiles with him. And this is pictured in beautiful ways that the people of God are, as it were, carried in uh, by the Gentiles who bring them in on their shoulders. The Gentiles are pictured as bringing in uh, their gifts as an offering. And God says, uh, their gifts will be acceptable on my altar. And so you have the the combined picture of the Gentiles being self-offerings brought to God uh, and bringing themselves to God to put on God's altar, and the picture of their bringing in their gifts to God and presenting offerings to God. And so the Apostle Paul, who sees the Gentile deacons, the treasures of the Gentile churches, bringing in their gifts to Jerusalem, Paul looks, as it were, behind him and sees them coming in, and he sees that here is the tribute of the Gentiles, here are the offerings being brought in from the Gentiles. But more than that, The Apostle Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So the Apostle Paul sees the Gentiles being offered up and marvelous (laughs) that their offering is acceptable on God's altar. The Gentiles who had been excluded from the, the house of God and the place of worship are in the fullness of the realization of the promises of God, that their offering uh, is made acceptable. And so uh, he sees this, of course, as coming about in only one way, through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who has been made the minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, that he might confirm the promises given unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So it's through the work of Jesus Christ that the Gentiles are gathered in, but the Gentiles are gathered in in great numbers. There's a great harvest being brought in, and the Apostle Paul sees himself as leading, as it were, a great chorus of Gentile praise. Uh, you'll notice in that one quotation that Christ is made a minister of the circumcision, uh, not in the sense that he ministers to the circumcision, but in the sense that he fulfills the calling of the circumcision. He fulfills that in order that the promises might be realized that the Gentiles might partake of the mercy of God. And then he says in verse uh, 9, Therefore will I give praise unto thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And there he pictures Jesus Christ as singing in the midst of the Gentiles because he has fulfilled the ministry that is his in order that the Gentiles might praise God. And therefore, the Apostle Paul saw his own ministry not as a betrayal of his people, but through the marvelous principle that he rightly interpreted from the Old Testament. He saw that when uh, Israel was judged in spite of their failures, in spite of their sins, Their judgment did not frustrate God's purpose, but in the very judgment of Israel, blessing went to the Gentiles, as it had to Naaman, as it had to Nineveh in the days of Jonah. So now again, blessing goes to the Gentiles through Israel's judgment. But then the apostle sees his own ministry in bringing in the Gentiles as having another effect, quickening the Jews to jealousy. And oh, how Paul wanted to make them jealous. How he wanted to make them yearn again for those things that had been given to them in the promises. And so the Apostle Paul says that now as you receive mercy, now through your mercy, they also may receive mercy. So there's a beautiful wave effect, as Herman Ritterbos calls it in which the, the, the Gentiles, as they're brought into the kingdom, quickened the jealousy, God's own people. And Paul says, I'm not a traitor. I'm the one who's fulfilling the promises given to the Father that have been realized through Jesus Christ, and I'm leading a tremendous offering of praise. Now, uh, what application does this calling of the apostle as the great uh, missionary to the Gentiles, uh, what application does this have to the problems we've been discussing of church growth and moratorium and mission and and, uh, the questions of uh, uh, political interpretation and social uh, action on the part of the people of God. Now just here, my friends, is really the burden uh, of my concern. You see, I think we face a danger. The danger is to suppose that what changes everything doesn't change anything. And you know that's not really very logical. We know better from our own personal experience. Uh, We know that the glory of God is the most practical lesson that we can learn in terms of our own Christian obedience as we examine our own motivation. Why are we doing this? Uh, Are we engaging in some project of empire building? Are we seeking some uh, kind of personal triumph or personal success? Uh, We have learned, being taught by the Word and the Spirit of God, that we must examine our motives in terms of God's glory. And you see, while this may seem to be a commonplace, while it may sound like just a standard word that you'd expect every Reformed theologian to say, that of course the glory of God comes first, and not only every Reformed theologian, but of course if you stop to think about it, every Christian will have to agree uh, but, and it seems to be a commonplace that has no reference to the whole thought uh, of missionary motivation and missionary service. But actually, just as the, the motive of the glory of God is what will change all of our own service, our personal lives, so the motive of the glory of God is what changes everything in relation to the mission of the church. Uh, if the glory of God is really foremost, you see, then there won't be the empire building among the mission societies, uh, then there won't be the wrong kind of, uh, of, uh, of a nationalistic feeling, uh, although we've been uh, warned not to be too quick to call it the wrong kind, considering what it may be a response to. But you see, all of our motivations from both sides need to be understood in terms of this great point of the glory of God. Are we seeking God's glory or are we seeking our own success? And the glory of God is the goal of missions. And the reason I refer to this Romans 15 passage is because I'm convinced that one of the greatest insights that we must see for the whole structure of mission and growth of the church is, is this theme of doxology, this theme of triumph, this theme of glorifying in what God has done and what he will do, and that all things are to his glory. And it's in that context that we carry forward the Lord's work. Now, the Lord, of course, is glorified in judgment as well uh, as in redemption. Uh, Paul in Romans makes that very clear. The righteousness of God is revealed. And the righteousness of God is revealed not only in justification, but also in judgment, in justice. And God will see to it that at last all that righteousness will be fully revealed, and Jesus Christ is the, is the center in both. Jesus Christ is the Redeemer, but Jesus Christ is also the Judge in the great... Uh, uh, the, 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 the painting on the wall of the Sistine Chapel by Michelangelo of the Last Judgment. The figure of Jesus Christ is in the center, and that's something that I think has largely been forgotten, but it's central in Paul's preaching that he's appointed the day in which he will judge the world by Jesus Christ, and the church as it goes forth with its message of the gospel does speak of justice and of righteousness and of a judge appointed by God. And there is the glory of God, which is also the purpose of judgment. And because that is the uh, part of the purpose, part of the glory of God, that God is glorified in judgment, therefore we must beware, of course, uh, of speaking just in success terms of church growth. And may I just make clear that all I'm trying to do in this message is to see the depth of the reform dynamic. (laughs) I'm... uh, Uh, I'm opposing uh, some statements that are made by people sometimes favoring church growth, but I'm certainly not opposing uh, the the zeal and and the yearning for church growth nor nor the wisdom of advice regarding church growth that has come from the church growth school. But, But when we do see that there is the element of judgment, then we understand why it is that Jesus preaches in Nazareth although he wouldn't expect a Nazareth uh, to be a receptive community. Uh, he knew in advance that a prophet is not with, with any honor in his own country, and he didn't choose Nazareth because it was regarded as responsive. He chose Nazareth because uh, he had been brought up there. It was the village of Galilee, and to this town he was sent. And, and though they heard the word and rejected it, God was glorified, in the very solemnity of the word that Jesus pronounced against them. And and we must not forget the reality of that element. Paul went to the synagogues, uh, not because he regarded the synagogues as the best base for his operations, nor because he expected to find in the synagogues the nucleus of the new church, although, of course, he often did so. But he went to the synagogues because of the responsibility that these who were the people of God should hear the word of the message. And of course, after a while, he began to get the picture. He began to realize that he was going to be forced out of the synagogue, not welcomed into it, but nevertheless, he continually went there because the glory of God demanded it. And as we go with the gospel, we recognize that we are going with the word that God has given to the nations, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear. And we have the responsibility of proclaiming that word of God for the glory of God. But on the other hand, brethren, the glory of God, while it is seen in judgment, the glory of God is seen in fruitfulness. Jesus said, so is my Father glorified that you should bear much fruit. And God is glorified in fruit. Now, of course, it's true that in the Bible, fruitfulness has a very broad perspective. Uh, God creates a world that's to be fruitful. He puts man in a garden. He commands him to be fruitful and to multiply. And in redemption also, there are many dimensions to fruitfulness. Uh, Isaiah 5 tells how God prepares uh, the Israel, you know, to be a fruitful uh, vine. He uh, prepares the ground, makes it all ready takes out the stones, builds a wall, a tower, plants the vines, does everything for the purpose of fruitfulness. But then uh, he gets wild grapes. Uh, The fruitfulness doesn't come. And God judges when there is not fruitfulness. Now, God demands that there be fruit. Now, that fruit includes glorifying God with the fruit of our lips. It includes uh, fruitfulness in terms of the holiness of our lives, which Jesus talks about in that very passage in John 15. There's fruitfulness in terms of ministry to the saints. Paul wrote to the Romans that he hoped to have fruit among them also. But fruitfulness has also this dimension of, of bringing others in. Our good works are to be done, and they're to be seen of men who will glorify our Father. The disciples are chosen to bear fruit, and they're sent to the nations. Jesus sends those whom he chooses to bear fruit. And Jesus Christ himself compares himself to the seed, the seed that must fall into the ground and die, and so it will bear much fruit. And Jesus Christ does send his disciples into the harvest field with that image, and he calls his disciples to be fishers of men, uh, very important to notice that uh, he does not give the call while they're sitting on the beach with their torn nets. Uh, he gives the call after he sent them out into the deep. And when it's the, the nets are full to breaking and the boats are full to sinking, at that point, Jesus says, uh, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. <laughs> so Jesus Christ himself is the one who dies in order that he might bear fruit and the Father is glorified in the the fruitage, the fruitfulness of the vine. Uh, Jesus Christ is the true vine. The vine was the symbol of of Israel, but Jesus is the true vine, that is to say the true Israel, Uh, the, the one who will bear fruit to the glory of God. And as we reach out for men, as we bring men into the kingdom, as we invite them to Jesus Christ, as we see the church growing day by day with those that that are saved, it it is fruit that is being born, fruit of the vine, fruit of Jesus Christ, fruit of his ministry. And I do think that this is a perspective that that must uh, ring out afresh Again, yes, it's something we know, but does it really fill our hearts? Does it really fill our hearts? Not simply, you see, the need of the lost, but the glory of the Savior. Jesus died that he should bear much fruit. Jesus Christ is the one who is the Lord of the harvest. And he tells us to pray to the Lord of the harvest that that, that he might thrust forth labors into his harvest. It's his harvest. He's the one that's glorified. And I think sometimes uh, we fail in placing before the church uh, the real motivation of mission by not connecting it directly enough uh, with the Lord of the mission so that we in our own hearts are doing these things not for our organization, uh, or, or not even for the lost alone, uh, but for our Lord. And, and that it's, uh, he might see the desire of his soul and be satisfied uh, in order that the fullness of his people should be brought in. So there is a doxological goal of missions. It's for the glory of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And that doxological goal means there's also a doxological mood. That is, it's the ministry of praise that bears witness. Uh, We're gathered to sing the songs of Zion. We're gathered to the great festival assembly uh, on the Mount of the Lord, which is the heavenly Jerusalem. And the picture in the Old Testament, uh, as the nations are called to join in the song, is not a picture that has disappeared because actually the centripetal movement of the Old Testament, the in-gathering of the nations, uh, isn't reversed to a centrifugal movement uh, without uh, a a, a very important theological development. (laughs) Namely, uh, the mountain of the Lord gets raised up to heaven, and so when you go out into the world, you're still calling people to come in, only not to one mountain on earth, you're calling them to come into the glorified Savior. But you're asking them to join the songs of praise, the songs of Zion, the celebration of that finished work of Jesus Christ because the mercy seat is sprinkled with His blood. How important that orientation of praise is in all of our witness. And you know, if there's anything that ought to characterize the Reformed faith, It's this principle of singing praises to God, because, you know, you don't just say, you don't just put an introduction to a book or something, let God be glorified. If you're going to say, let God be glorified, then you've got to say, hallelujah, you know. And that's much better. (laughs) uh, I've mentioned this so many times, my friends are getting tired of hearing it, but... uh, uh, when I was at Lausanne, I had the marvelous experience of attending the, the Reformed churches that had a great gathering in the, in the stadium in the morning. I, I uh, played hooky from the regular meetings and uh, went to a service of worship on Sunday morning. It's uh, the Presbyterian tradition, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, uh, w- while I was in this uh, service of worship in this great stadium, uh, Pierre Courteau preached Uh, And he preached on Psalm 148. (laughs) And you know, that whole, there were about 10,000 people there, all singing the praises of God. And uh, Gurdjieff began, you know, his sermon. He stood up there, you know, what would be the first word he would say? (laughs) This great gathering of Reformed churches and uh, a great Reformed preacher, what would he say? And he stood there and he said, Alleluia! (laughs) And I just thought that was absolutely magnificent. It, It thrilled me to this moment. You see, uh, there uh, there is a place uh, to invite people, <laughs> and incidentally, I think more and more we need to realize the church has to meet at all kinds of levels. We need meetings in the house church. We need meetings in a, what we think of as a parish church, sort of. <laughs> we need citywide meetings of the church, don't we? And of the church, not not just of organizations, but the church. And what a place for evangelism! <laughs> When the whole church is standing there praising God with one voice. Well, there's that mode that must characterize our witness that comes right out of the heart of saying, All glory be to God. You know, uh, you've, um, I guess you've wondered sometime, haven't you, when you've been watching a, uh, <clears throat> a TV drama, you know, uh, if only the heroine could hear the soundtrack. Uh, she would know that the hero was galloping down the last slope for that final clinch. Uh, but you see, uh, she's, she's still desolate because she can't hear the music building up to the final coda, you know. Uh, but now, uh, with the church, we need to hear the music. Uh, we need those hallelujahs. That's why we have all those songs in the book of Revelation, so that we can hear them. And we know the Lord's coming for his church. And, uh, and, you know, that's the way we ought to be behaving in terms of our own uh, uh, obedience to Jesus Christ. And then we, we, that would make us realize that we have a sure hope and we're not just involved in the open-ended dialogue of another talk show, you know. <laughs> the, the Lord is coming and, and, and therefore we can sing his praise. Now, how about the grace of God as the source of missions? Well, all things are of God. And the election of God's grace is the source. Uh, Now, of course, here again, uh, Reformed doctrine has had maybe in many ways a justifiably bad press. Uh, That fellow who gave that terrible answer to Kerry, you know, that uh, God's saving the heathen and he doesn't need you, Uh, young man. I don't think I have the quote right, but the idea... Uh, that, that, that has been very widespread. And people who believe in election, uh, naturally, they expect God to do it Also, why should they be involved? Well, I think uh, you'll recognize that that isn't a uh, uh, Calvinistic doctrine, but what is emphasized in the doctrine of election is that the free grace... Of salvation is god's grace it's god's electing grace it's jesus christ who says other sheep i have them also i must bring my sheep hear my voice and here is is the lordship of christ which is not in any way against numbers but which requires us to go out because his other sheep are there now we're uh, well aware of that and God the Father, too, in his electing grace, uh, is, is, is reaching out to bring in his people. Uh, I, I won't stop to comment on that now. I think it's well understood uh, that we are chosen in Christ, who is God's Son and God's servant, and the love of God given to his people is given to them in Jesus Christ. And therefore, it is the yearning of his heart that these people should be his. It's God's grace, and it's God's free grace Uh, which, of course, means uh, uh, that we are chosen not just to service, but we're chosen to status. We're chosen not just to be a servant church, but we're chosen to be sons of God in Jesus Christ. And as McGavern has well pointed out, the modern doctrine of universalism cuts the very nerve of mission because if, we are, if the church exists only in mission, that's a way of saying the only difference between the church and the world is not salvation, but the only difference between the church and the world is that the church knows about the world's salvation, which is completely another matter. So here again you see uh, the doctrines of grace, of free grace, uh, of God's determining grace become vital for a theology of mission. But more particularly, the matter of God's sure grace uh, has uh, has bearing on the number of people. Remember, Paul was about to leave Corinth. Um, I don't know whether he had not done adequate uh, soil testing there or something, but anyway, he was ready to go. He was very discouraged. But then the Lord said to him. Uh, uh, th- that he should fear not but that he should stay because he says I have much people in this city now you see the the point is that the Lord Jesus Christ had his people and it was the fact that Christ had his people in that city that demanded of the Apostle that he should go through discouraging days because obviously the fruit is not always going to be evident. Elijah didn't know about the 7,000 that hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. Uh, Now, he hadn't taken a survey, I have to admit. Uh, And yet, sometimes, even when the surveying is done, it isn't always apparent. Uh, As in that uh, uh, fishing uh, enterprise when Peter had fished all night and caught nothing, you'd think you'd check the lake out pretty well. But then Jesus sent him out the next day and said, go out into the deep and let down your nets. And at the word of the Lord, the nets uh, were filled. So you see, God has his people. We can't always discover where they are. Uh, The seed does grow secretly, and then suddenly we see the effects but we are to recognize the the, the sureness of God's grace. And I think this becomes a matter of tremendous importance. Uh, You see, Jesus didn't trust the multitudes. He knew their hearts. He knew you couldn't always uh, uh, trust even in what were apparent uh, responses of a very full kind. But Jesus, who knew the hearts, also is the one who calls his own. I was touched by... Samuel Escobar's uh, comments this morning about being in the London airport and seeing all those people go by and thinking of them all reminded me of an experience I had in my own ministry one time, but uh, more to the point, it reminds you, say, of Livingston uh, standing uh, there with his father-in-law and looking uh, north and seeing the smoke of all of those villages. And you see, that vision is given to us with a particular urgency when we hear the voice of the Lord saying to us, I have much people in that city. And so often when we are discouraged and we might think in spite of everything there's no hope here and this is being a very resistant population, then we need to hear that voice of God again. We need to recognize again the reality of the doctrine of election and realize that though we don't see them yet, and in a certain sense we can't see them yet until the Lord brings them to himself, nevertheless we believe his word and in obedience to his word we go forth. The the grace of God, the election of grace is the source of missions and the triumph of grace too. The, the, The mystery of God's love at the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The measure of the love of God, how can you measure it? The love of the Father for the Son through all eternity. Uh, my beloved son, my chosen, the one in whom I delight, uh, the one to whom God gives the world, but God gives up that son for the world. And and this is at the heart of missions, and this is at the heart of all theology, and certainly of Reformed theology, that there is this electing love of God in which he gives Jesus Christ Christ for the salvation of men, and triumphs in terms of the resurrection, triumphs with the risen Lord who breathes on his disciples and says, Receive the Holy Spirit, who asks Peter, Lovest thou me? And then says to Peter, Feed my sheep. It's the one who is the Lord of love, the one who is full of grace and truth, the one who says, Abide in my love. Uh, This is the one who sends us forth, and the source of mission is here. I would like to comment on an insight that has come home to me very much recently. And uh, I, I was asked to give some lectures uh, at Reformed Bible College. And uh, in preparing those, this uh, <laughs> the importance of this came through to me even more. Uh, you know, there is a danger, isn't there? That we think that missions is, after all, still an addendum, still an appendix. <laughs> that you get all the structures of Reformed theology. But if the heart of it is salvation, if the heart of it is the love of God and Jesus Christ, how can you leave missions out? But then sometimes people say, well, you know, here's here's a New Testament ethic, and the whole structure of ethics, uh, of Christian ethics, Christian character building, Christian obedience, all this is something else. And, And then there's missions to think about later. But, you know, just reflect on the ethical teaching of Jesus Christ. Just reflect on the parable of the Good Samaritan and consider what Jesus taught there. The lawyer has the question, you know, what is the great commandment? And he knows the answer it's love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. But then, you know, he has this other wrong question who is my neighbor? How many people do I have to love? And he shows that he's loving for points and all that. It's a works righteousness. But then what does Jesus do? He gives us the picture of the priest and the Levite going by, and then the Samaritan doing as much for that man as if the man had been his own brother. And after you're given that, what is is it that Jesus says? Well, he says, who was neighbor to him that fell among the thieves? Uh, To whom may I be a neighbor? And what's the point? The point is that Samaritan had compassion. That's why he poured in the oil and wine. That's why he tore up his garment. That's why he made bandages. That's why he carried the man on his own animal. That's why he did it all. No other reason. He had compassion. And the point is, the Jews wouldn't have expected that Samaritan to do anything. If he had gone by on the other side, nobody would have commented. The priest had a responsibility, yes, the Levite, yes, but nobody would have expected the Samaritan to do it. But the Samaritan had compassion. And what's the model of compassion in the New Testament? Well, just look at the use of the word. It's used of of the compassion of God, it's used of the compassion of Christ, and in fact it's always used of the compassion of God or of Christ, except in this place. So you see, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who shows us the meaning of the divine compassion. And what's God's compassion? It's the love of grace, isn't it? What is it that we care about in the Reformed faith? Is it some tradition? A lot of us weren't brought up in the tradition. What is it that we care about? It's grace, isn't it? It's that God's love is unmerited free favor. It's that we deserve none of it and we got all of it. It's that we didn't deserve anything but wrath from God and God gave us His only begotten Son. Well, if that's grace, if that's compassion, then what's the model of the law of love? Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind love your neighbor as yourself well even your love for your neighbor what's the model of it? a legalistic love how many love points do I have to earn you know how many people do I have to love that isn't it is it it's the love of compassion it's love like God's love that's the model and that's what Jesus demands Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Uh, Love your enemies. Do good to them that persecute you. You see, that's the ethics of the gospel. Now, the point is this. The ethics of the gospel are a missionary ethic. Uh, It isn't that missions are added later. It's that the very structure of the new obedience of the love of God in Jesus Christ is is a missionary structure. It's the kind of love it is. It's the undemanded that is demanded. It's what nobody can expect that God expects. It's the giving everything because God gave everything in Jesus Christ. And you know, all these all these changes in approach and thinking and psychology and 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 methodology—they're extremely important. They are, but. I've heard an awful lot of them. And I know how to do so many things that I don't do. And I find the trouble in my own heart is that it's because I have not been overmastered by the love of God's grace. And there's nothing that's so needed if the church is to grow and if missions are to be missions than that we should get the very heart of the ethics of Jesus Christ which is what love is, and to see that the love is the love of self-giving grace, the love of Calvary. It's the model for our obedience. And what the parable of the prodigal son does is apply that to missions methodology. Because there you have the father rejoicing when his son comes back. The son doesn't deserve anything. He's blown it. And he admits that he's blown it. I don't deserve to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. But the father welcomes him home. He gives him everything. He makes him his son. He has the feast. And then you see the older son out in the field. And the father comes out to demand that he come into the feast. And he doesn't want to do it. You know, I don't want to have anything to do with that type. And so he's out in the field. But the father says, he says, son, all that I have is yours. But it was me that we should make merry and be glad for this thy brother. He's not willing to call him his brother. Uh, the, The brother isn't, but the father is. He says, this thy brother was dead and is alive again. And he was lost and is found. You see, the joy of the father's heart. And if the older brother understands the father at all, he's got to share that joy. Now you see what that means. It means that the true older brother has to do what jesus christ did because jesus told the parable because he was going out eating with publicans and sinners that's why he told it he was justifying what he was doing jesus was making himself unclean he was going out to the pig pen to find sinners to bring him home he's the seeking shepherd in the first parable he goes to seek the sheep one sheep out of a hundred that's lost And he's also the older brother who goes to seek the younger brother that's lost. And that's the real thrust of the parable. But do you see what that demands of us? Not just that we go into the feast with sinners, we've got to do that. But more than that, that we have to be ready to go and seek sinners. Therefore, let us be very careful, those of us in the Reformed tradition, not to discard or discredit Uh, the real depths of wisdom that are given to us by people who are studying situations, uh, people who are sociologists, and people who have understanding as to how communities are structured. Let us learn these things, because this is part of, of the structure of the world to which we are applying the word of God. And let us not, therefore, uh, briefly or curtly dismiss the wisdom that is being garnered for us uh, by the Church Growth School, uh, as one example. But let us also realize that the wisdom of God is, of course, God's wisdom, not man's. And that while we look at the situation realistically, that the power of God operates, in ways that's far, that are far above anything that we would describe as realism. <laughs> God's power is, should I say, surrealistic. That is to say, the power of God leaps beyond all the bounds of our imagining to bring to pass his purposes in Jesus Christ. And in wisdom, we have to prove the situation, prove what is that acceptable and perfect will of God, Prove it by bringing it to the test. This is Paul's language. Prove yourself. Prove the situation. Buy up the time. Seize the opportunity. Look in wisdom as to where to work and when to work. Uh, Observe those situations where the Lord has opened to you a providential door and be ready to enter in. But the heart of the matter, the heart of the wisdom, must also be in Jesus Christ. In realizing he's the Lord, he's the sovereign, he opens the door, and it's in obedience to Jesus Christ that we walk uh, in the path.